Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to the 25th installment of the Michigan Constitution podcast. We're going to continue reviewing both Article 1, Section 10 generally, and ex post facto cases specifically. But first, you're a spoonful of legalese. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review the Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. The case of People v. Callan, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2003, deals with old criminal convictions and how they can be used to enhance a new criminal conviction from a misdemeanor to a felony. And such was the case for defendant Callan when he was stopped in 1999 by a Farmington Hills police officer because of Callan's erratic driving and speeding. He was arrested for operating under intoxicating liquor after an investigation determined he was too intoxicated to drive. He was found guilty at trial and sentenced to two years probation as a third-time offender. Defendant Callan argues that the third-time offender statute, which makes his third drunk driving charge a felony instead of just a misdemeanor, that it should not apply to him despite his previous alcohol-related driving convictions. To do so amounted to unjust ex post facto violation. See, prior to the current 1999 drunk driving arrest, he had been convicted of impaired driving in 1993 and operating with an unlawful blood alcohol level in 1995. So here's what happened. In 1998, the Michigan legislature decided they might be able to crack down on drunk driving if they upped the third drunk driving charge to a felony versus keeping all drunk driving charges as something simple like a misdemeanor. So now, when defendant got popped a third time for driving drunk, he's facing a felony, not a third misdemeanor. But the defendant argues when he got hit for the 1993 and the 1995 drunk driving charges, there was no third drunk driving offense as a felony charge. So to now hold those two prior convictions of drunk driving against him was an ex post facto violation, he argued. Hmm. 
No way, said the Michigan Court of Appeals. They concluded the defendant's argument holds no merit because the legal consequence of the law change only applies to the defendant as a result of any acts committed by the defendant after the effective date of the statute. It's a clever argument by the defendant, but the court isn't buying it, mainly based upon the future forward-looking viewpoint. If the defendant never drinks and drives again, he's going to avoid a third drunk driving charge. The previous two convictions will only hurt him in the future if he gets caught drinking and driving. He can't be charged with a third felonious drunk driving charge if he never drinks and drives again. If you wondered whether this court would hearken back to the Rousseau case and make the argument ex post facto provisions are merely designed to secure substantial personal rights against arbitrary and oppressive legislation, well, you're a winner. The Court of Appeals in this case says, the real issue is whether the law changes the legal consequences of acts completed before its effective date. Here, in our case, the amended statute did not attach any legal consequences to the defendant's prior impaired driving convictions. So, said another way, the new law did nothing to or against Mr. Callan at the time the law was passed. He could still have kept on keeping on with his life and had no interaction with this new law. And remember, ex post facto protection is there to protect past behavior. Something done in the past will remain as zero consequence against you even if it becomes illegal to do in the future. Case in point, how about this? I'm over 21 years of age. Sadly, I'm well over 21 years of age. My ability to drink now has the legal ability to drink. I'm that old, but I digress. If in 2022, the Michigan legislature, and, and to be clear, I'm recording this in 2021, so let's just say in a year from now, the Michigan legislature, for whatever reason, chose to raise the legal drinking age to 50 years of age, well, then I'm no longer allowed to drink legally. Why? Because I'm not yet 50 years old. But I don't have to worry about the cops coming to my front door to arrest me for drinking alcohol, say, from last year based off my consumption of alcohol in 2020. Because at that time, when I was doing that, when I was drinking as a, uh, say, 42-year-old in 2019, 2020, that was legal for me to do. So when they raise it to 20, they can't come back and arrest me for drinking for not being 50 because that's an ex post facto law. What I was doing at the age of 42 in 2019 was drinking legally. Now, to be sure, because I'm not yet 50 years old, I would not be allowed to drink until either the Michigan legislature lowers the drinking age down to like 43 years of age, or if they don't lower it, then I just can't drink until I turn 50 years old. In this case, this, this matter of, of a third drunk driving being a felony by taking into account the past two convictions, it's a forward-looking, meaning from, from, from the day it becomes enacted going forward, don't get popped again for drunk driving because we're, we will be allowed to count those past two. You're on notice and we're going to take those into account. And that's exactly what happened here, the Michigan Court of Appeals said. The legal consequences of Mr. Callan's previous drunk driving charges only spring into action based upon future conduct of driving under the influence. 
Recidivist statutes don't change the penalty imposed for the earlier convictions, and that's important to remember. The conduct for which the defendant is being punished is driving while intoxicated after having fair notice that the statute had been amended to permit enhancement of a drunk driving conviction with any other prior drunk driving convictions you may have had. Heavier penalties for a second offense are well known in the law. They are in no manner an ex post facto violation, nor do such amendments have any sort of retroactive effect. It is the subsequent, it is the future offense that is punished more harshly, not the previous. In conclusion, the Court of Appeals held there is no retroactive application of the law where a prior conviction is used to enhance the penalty for a new offense committed after the effective date of the statute. Therefore, there is no ex post facto violation to be found here. Our second case to discuss today is People v. Earl, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 2014, and it deals with a failed ex post facto argument related to paying a higher crime victim fee. Here's the fact pattern that you need to know. On March 18th, 2010, defendant Earl robbed a bank. He was arrested six days later, whereupon crack and heroin were found in his possession. The defendant was charged with and convicted of bank robbery along with two counts of possessing less than 25 grams of a controlled substance. At the time Mr. Earl committed this bank robbery, the law only required a defendant to pay a $60 crime victim's rights assessment. But the statute was amended effectively uh, December 16th, 2010, and it raised that fee from $60 up to $130. And when defendant Earl was sentenced in February of 2011, so that's what, like three months after the the the, the assessment went up from 60 to 30, he was assessed that $130 fee, not the $60 amount, which was technically being assessed on the day that he committed the crime. His defense attorney argued this was an ex post facto violation because the increase in fine from $60 up to $130 increased the punishment against him. Well, settle in, kids. We've got a long chat ahead of us. The Michigan Supreme Court adopts a United States Supreme Court philosophy by saying not only do we continue to look at those four instances where ex post facto may occur, but we then have a two-step inquiry after that. Those two steps are number one, determine whether the legislature intended the statute as a criminal punishment versus a civil remedy, but then number two, the, if the legislature intended the statute to merely be a civil remedy, the court must also determine whether the statutory scheme is so punitive in effect that it essentially negates any real intention for it to be considered civil in nature. <clears throat> Listen, I, I know that may seem a little confusing, but I promise I'll explain it as we, as we get through this case and frankly as we get through <clears throat> the next case as well. Okay, so step one. Did the legislature intend for this fine to be considered punitive? To make that determination, we review the statute to see if the legislature expressly 
or implied a preference for punitive or for civil. If the statute imposes a reprimand against the wrongdoer, such that it would likely deter others from doing, you know, this thing that we're trying to deter, well, then it's going to be viewed as punitive. However, a statute is intended as a civil remedy if it imposes a disability to further a legitimate governmental purpose. And, and then the court gets into this really long conversation about the difference between the term assessment as opposed to, you know, the word fine. And the court belabors the point of, that a fine is usually something you impose for bad behavior, but to assess someone of a dollar amount is merely to impose, you know, a, a, according to like an established rate. Well, okay, fine. It's an, it's an assessment, not a fine. Let's just accept it and move on, right? But the court also notes that crime victims' rights assessment fees, it levies a flat fee against a convicted criminal defendant regardless of the severity of the crime or how many felonies the defendant faces in court. The monetary value of the assessment depends only on whether the crimes constituted a misdemeanor or a felony. If the crime is a misdemeanor, then no assessment imposed. On the other hand, if the crime is a felony, then a crime victim's right assessment fee will be imposed on the defendant. And you may wonder why the legislature doesn't affix the crime victim's fee assessment against defendants who commit a misdemeanor, and that it's, frankly, in my opinion, a good question. After all, a person can be a victim of a misdemeanor crime just as easily as they could be a victim of a felonious crime. But... For whatever reason, in the wisdom of the Michigan legislature, they've chosen only to make felony defendants pay this fee. All right, next. The Court of Appeals found the assessment has no punitive purpose, but instead it provides funding for crime victim services. The court found that the legislature made it clear that this funding of services is the primary goal of the Crime Victims' Rights Act. Although this assessment places a burden on convicted criminal felony defendants, the assessment's purpose is not to punish, but to fund programs that support crime victims. More so, this assessment funds a variety of programs that benefit the health and safety of crime victims and other community members. For all those aforementioned reasons, the court found that step one was complete. This assessment is not intended to be punitive in nature against a defendant. But now that means we have to determine whether the effects of this increased assessment from $60 up to $130 is in violation of the ex post facto's quote-unquote increase in punishment violation. So, are you ready for this, listeners? The Michigan Supreme Court adopts a seven-factor test to go through when determining if the assessment is so punitive in effect, it essentially makes the increase punitive in outcome. I'm not going to go through, I don't have to go through all seven of them. Although the, the Michigan Supreme Court does identify the seven, they don't actually use all seven. So stick with me, don't, don't, don't skip out on me here. But I do want to put this in perspective. We've got this four aspects of what makes something ex post facto, plus we've got a two-step of is it punitive or is it civil test that we have to go through? And then we got a seven-factor review to make sure it really isn't punitive in nature. Don't you just love the law? Okay, first. One, whether the sanction involves an affirmative disability or restraint. 
No dice, said the Supremes. Sure, we can take into account how the effects of the statute is felt by those subject to it, but if the disability is minor and indirect, its effects are unlikely to be punitive. And here in our case, a maximum of $130 is certainly not an insignificant amount, but it's nothing approaching the ultimate punishment, which is ahem, incarceration. So for that reason, factor number one goes against the defendant's argument. Second, whether it has historically been regarded as a punishment, the court finds because the crime victim's rights assessment has not been regarded in our history and tradition as a form of criminal punishment, it's not going to satisfy the second factor. To the contrary, the crime victim assessment does not share the characteristics of punitive fines because it imposes a flat fee irrespective of the underlying criminal conduct. See, there's that assess versus fine differentiation again. Next. Three, whether its operation will promote the traditional aims of punishment, retribution, and deterrence. The Michigan Supreme Court said neither retribution nor deterrence are the intended goals of the crime victim assessment. The assessment is not retributive because it does not consider the underlying factual nature of the crimes committed, nor the number of convictions when determining how much that fee is to be assessed. It is simply a fee which is reasonably related to the goal of requiring convicted criminal defendants to bear the cost of crime victims' services. Nor, the court went on to say, is this fee set to act as a deterrence, because the fee is so small it's unlikely to have any significant deterrent effect, particularly in light of the other more severe consequences like incarceration. So, to put it plainly, 130 bucks is not going to stop someone from robbing a bank, but that 25 to life prison time, now that's a real deterrence. Next up, whether an alternative purpose to which it may be rationally be connected is assignable for it. The court opines, the crime victim assessment has a reasonable connection to a non-punitive purpose. The goal of the crime victim's rights fund and its assessments is to fund crime victims' services to help protect the rights of crime victims. Any punitive effects are incidental to the goal of offsetting crime victim services, which is logically connected to the assessment. The Michigan legislature's decision to place the burden of funding the crime victims' funds on the backs of those convicted of a crime is doing it to the people who are responsible for all those crimes. The idea here is that we're going to provide services to victims, but those services that are being provided shouldn't be paid for by the innocent citizen who has committed no crime. To the contrary, the Michigan legislature is placing the burden where the burden belongs, which is the victim makers. These criminals are creating the victims. They're going to fund the victim services. And finally, Five, whether it appears excessive in relation to the alternative purpose assigned. Our state Supreme Court did not believe there was any sort of punitive purpose or effect because the crime victim's rights assessment is not excessive with respect to its purpose. Although the increase from $60 up to $130 may impose a hardship on some, the assessment is set at the rate that the legislature determines is necessary to 
adequately fund the service programs. Because of the operation of inflation and other unavoidable cost increases, it is necessary that the amount of the assessment be periodically increased in order to fund the same level of services. The increased assessment, therefore, was not the result of a policy choice to impose a harsher punishment on the defendants for their conduct, but instead was necessary to continue providing the same level of services that have been provided, but have gotten more expensive, and those requirements are mandated by law. Overall, when considering the factors as analyzed here, there is not much reason to believe that this assessment is so punitive in nature as to negate the legislature's intention to deem it anything other than just merely a civil assessment in nature. So in conclusion, the Michigan Court of Appeals held that an increase in the crime victim's rights assessment does not violate, you know, the prohibition on ex post facto laws. Why? Because the legislature's intent in enacting the assessment was civil. Additionally, the purpose and effect of the assessment is not so punitive as to negate the legislature's civil intent. Therefore, the Michigan Supreme Court found the increase does not violate the ex post facto provision of the Michigan Constitution as found in Article 1, Section 10. All right, our last case is People v. Temelkowski. It is a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2014, and I have to say it's a pretty interesting ex post facto case. Now, I must warn you, this is a lengthy conversation. This case and its uh, Court of Appeals decision will ultimately be overturned by the Michigan Supreme Court. But it wasn't overturned in regard to ex post facto, it was overturned on a due process violation. For that reason, I'm going to take the time to give you this long, drawn-out explanation of why the Court of Appeals did not believe this to be an ex post facto violation. I think their reasoning is sound. Uh, I think it's very well written. I think it's well explained. And it's a well-justified court opinion worth learning about. So here we go. In 1994, our defendant, Mr. Temelkowski, was a 19-year-old male who was charged with second-degree criminal sexual conduct, or I'll refer to it also as CSC second, criminal sexual conduct, CSC, uh, second degree, all right? And this, this CSC second uh, that was being charged against him was with a person under the age of 13. It was alleged Mr. Temelkowski kissed and groped a 12-year-old female. But it should be noted, however, that the facts and circumstances of the incident were disputed. Regardless, Mr. Temelkowski does end up pleading guilty to the CSC second charge because he was offered the Holmes Youthful Trainee Act, and subsequently he was sentenced to three years of probation. The value of the Holmes Youthful Trainee Act, and henceforth it's going to be referred to by its acronym HYTA, H-Y-T-A, Holmes Youthful Training Act, HYTA, is if the youth stays out of trouble for the duration of the probation, the criminal conviction will not go on the youngster's public record. Now, to be clear, police, prosecutors, and judges will know about it, but the public would not see it, not even with a background check. The idea with Haida 
is that we don't want a youthful mistake to haunt the person into childhood. The CSC second can be taken into consideration if the person offends again as an adult, but if this is the one and only run-in with the criminal justice system, this law is going to give a bit of a do-over for the young person. And Mr. Temelkowski does very well on probation, so much so that when his three years of probation are up, he is successfully discharged from probation, and Haida prevents his CSC second charge from entering his public record, thus no conviction will show up on a criminal background check by a potential employer. However, and there's always a however, that's how we get these cases to review and talk about, right? However, in the time between when Mr. Temelkowski pled guilty to the CSC second and when he was released from probation during those three years that in between time the Michigan legislature passed a law which stated anyone convicted of a CSC second would have to register with the sex offender registry list and has to be on that list for the rest of their life. And Mr. Temelkowski did just that from 1997 when he got off probation through and until 2012, he dutifully followed the requirements of the Sex Offender Registry Act. Henceforth, I'm going to call that SORA, S-O-R-A, Sex Offender Registry List, or excuse me, Registry Act, SORA. When he then asked a court to remove him from SORA, arguing that requiring him to register as a sex offender when he does not have a conviction for a sex offense constitutes an ex post facto violation of Article 1, Section 10 of the Michigan Constitution. As you'd imagine, the local county prosecutor objected to this request, claiming that it was well-established law that SORA's registration and reporting requirements do not constitute quote-unquote punishment in the constitutional sense, and therefore their requirements do not violate the Constitution. But the local judge agreed with Mr. Temelkowski and ruled in his favor. The judge said a few things. First, he said that Mr. Temelkowski was not convicted of a crime because he was offered, he accepted, and Mr. Temelkowski successfully completed his Haida probation. Meaning, because Haida acts as a barrier against a conviction, SORA never kicks in. You only register with SORA if you have a CSC conviction. Haida protected against a conviction, therefore, no SORA requirements. Also, don't you just love all the acronyms in the legal world? Second, the judge found this case to be a prime example of an ex post facto law. Mr. Temelkowski was not subject to the SORA law at the time he was sentenced, but once the Michigan legislature created the law that they did, he must now register for a punishment he was not susceptible to on the day of his criminal act or on the day that he actually pled guilty for the Haida eligibility. Hence how this case got to the Michigan Court of Appeals and why we're talking about it today. The Michigan Court of Appeals ruled against Mr. Tomakowski in his case. They did not believe that this was an ex post facto violation and we're going to talk about why. All right, well, remember both the uh, the Callan and the Earl cases? Well, we're right back at it again. First, the Court of Appeals notes we have to determine if being registered on the sex offender registry is a criminal punishment or if it's a civil matter. 
And then if the legislature intended with Sora to be a civil matter, we have to evaluate whether it effectively becomes so punitive in purpose or, you know, by its effect that it negates any intention by the legislature to actually treat it as civil. The Michigan Court of Appeals first addresses the legislative intent by reviewing the actual language from the Sex Offender Registry Act, and it reads as follows. The legislature declares that the Sex Offenders Registration Act was enacted pursuant to the legislature's exercise of the police power of the state with the intent to better assist law enforcement officers and the people of this state in preventing and protecting against the commission of future criminal sexual acts by convicted sex offenders. The legislature has determined that a person who has been convicted of committing an offense covered by this act poses a potential serious menace and danger to the health, safety, morals, and welfare of the people, and particularly the children of this state. The registration requirements of this act are intended to provide law enforcement and the people of this state with an appropriate, comprehensive, and effective means to monitor those persons who pose such a danger. The Court of Appeals found that this provision that we just read indicates the Michigan legislature was acting to protect the citizenry against individuals the public deems to pose as a danger. By being placed on this registry, it provides police and the public with a means of monitoring those individuals. Citing back to the Earl case, they point out that protecting the health and safety of the public by using their police powers, the Michigan legislature is purely exercising their regulatory authority. And, in our case, the victim was a 12-year-old when Mr. Temelkowski was 19 years old. The Court of Appeals held that the Michigan legislature could have reasonably believed the public should be protected and informed of individuals like, say, a Mr. Temelkowski, who successfully, you know, completed his HIDA requirements, but who committed a sexual offense against a person under the age of 13. For that reason, the Michigan Court of Appeals found this law change to be purely civil in nature. It was not imposed as a punishment against successful HIDA youths like Mr. Temelkowski. Okay, so if we know that the law is not intended to be a criminal punishment, but merely a civil matter. And remember, protecting the health and uh, safety of the public is considered a civil matter. We now must pull in those seven factors to determine when the civil matter actually becomes a punishment due to its effects. Now, again, we don't go through all seven with them, so please uh, don't skip out on me. First, whether it has historically been regarded as a punishment, the Michigan Court of Appeals said, that with regard to whether Sora has been regarded historically and traditionally as punishment, the concept of a sex offender registry and notification laws are a relatively new form of legislation. They point out that all 50 states of the United States, along with the federal government as well, all have some form of sex offender registration and notification provisions on the books. More so, the Michigan Court of Appeals found that there is a United States Supreme Court case which addresses this entire matter. And, as we know, the Supreme Court of the United States is the ultimate determiner of whether something is or is not constitutional across our fruited plain. The Michigan Supremes held 
the imposition of restrictive measures on sex offenders proclaimed to be dangerous is a legitimate, non-punitive governmental objective, and has historically been regarded as such. In this same particular case, the, the Supremes point out that there's a traditional form of punishment over our 200-year history, and that could include things like public shaming, such as branding or uh, banishing someone from the community, as well as publicity of criminal convictions, none of which are done under a sex offender registry law. To the contrary, SORA laws are there to provide information to the public for its own safety, not to humiliate the offender. Yeah, it may be humiliating to be on the SORA registry, our United States Supreme Court noted, but that's simply a collateral consequence of a valid law. For those reasons, the Michigan Court of Appeals held the first factor goes in favor of the SORA law not being an ex post facto law. Second, whether the sanction involves an affirmative disability or restraint, Regarding the affirmative disability or restraint factor, our Michigan Court of Appeals says it must inquire how the effects of the act are felt by those who are subject to it, and if the disability or restraint is minor and indirect, its effects then will unlikely to be punitive. The court points out there are no physical restraints with this registry. It does not limit a person on where they can work or live, and it has been determined if a professional license is lost due to the placement on this registry, well, that's not considered punitive. One other aspect the court notes, although the public availability of the information may have a lasting and painful impact on someone like Mr. Temelkowski, these consequences flow not from SORA's registration and dissemination requirements, but from the conviction itself. And if you remember, all of these types of convictions, they're already a matter of public record. Three, whether its operation will promote the traditional aims of punishment, retribution, and deterrence. The third relevant factor also fails to indicate a punitive purpose, our Michigan Court of Appeals found, because the Sex Offender Registry Act does not promote the traditional aims of punishment, such as retribution and deterrence, which was a matter pointed out in our Earl case a little bit earlier. Sure, the Sex Offender Registry Act may deter sexual offenses, but that is not the primary purpose of the law. Thus, it does not render the law punitive. But one other important point is that the law exempts certain individuals from its requirements in situations involving a consensual act. Also, the Act categorizes offenders into tiers depending on the severity of the underlying offense. These types of protective mechanisms are reasonably related to the danger of recidivism, which is consistent with the Michigan legislature's police powers to protect the health and safety of the public. Four, whether an alternative purpose to which it may be rationally be connected is assignable for it our Michigan Court of Appeals here starts out explaining how SORA has a rational connection to a non-punitive purpose, which means this factor does not constitute an ex post facto violation. The sex offender registry has a legitimate non-punitive purpose of public safety, which is advanced by alerting the public to the risk of sex offenders in their community. I know this sounds redundant, 
but the Michigan legislature's police powers to protect the public is paramount in the eyes of the law. Whether it appears excessive in relation to the alternative purpose assigned. This last factor that the court evaluates concerns whether the sex offender registry is excessive with respect to its non-punitive purpose of protecting the safety and welfare of the general public. When weighing this factor, neither the duration of the reporting requirements nor its broad dissemination of information to the public is deemed excessive. After all, the registry itself is passive. It requires individuals to seek out the list's content and information on sex offenders. Moreover, the duration for how long Mr. Tomokowski must register on the list is reasonably tied to the legitimate purposes of protecting the public. There are levels into which offenders are categorized, some only for a short amount of time, up to and including a life requirement to register, much like what Mr. Tomokowski is facing, and that's all based on the specific criminal sexual offense of which they're convicted. Likewise, the law does provide for exceptions based upon consent provided by the victim. So, for example, we refer to them as Romeo and Juliet defenses, where one person might be 17 years old, which is the age of consent in Michigan, but maybe the victim is 16 years old, but it's consensual sexual activity between the 16 and 17-year-old. These exceptions to the SORA law shows that the Michigan legislature is taking into account the severity of threat posed to the general public by the offender. And again, going back to our, our Romeo and Juliet scenario, the Michigan legislature does not believe that the 17-year-old engaging in sexual activity with a 16-year-old puts the community really at all that much risk because it's it's two people that are essentially the exact same age. Uh, they're likely, you know, seniors in high school. And it's one of those matters where we're not going to require that 17-year-old to go onto the sex offender registry list. That's different than, say, Mr. Temelkowski's situation where he was 19 uh, and he was engaging in activities with a 12-year-old. Okay, so here's where, though, and, and we got to talk about this HIDA aspect, and this is where the court gets into it. The court found that when the legislature amended HIDA to require youthful trainees assigned to this status before October of 2004 to comply with the sex offender registry, the Michigan legislature also amended the HIDA law to prohibit folks like Mr. Temelkowski from being eligible for HIDA status in the future. The idea was that the Michigan legislature believed those folks convicted of CSC second, like our defendant here, should not get the privilege of HIDA due to the seriousness of their criminal offense. The Michigan Court of Appeals held it was reasonable for the legislature to require pre-October 2004 class HIDA participants, of which Mr. Tomokowski was since his crime was back in 1994, to comply with the requirements in the Sex Offender Registry Act. It is within the authority of the legislature to believe someone who commits a CSC second might reoffend thus posing as a greater threat to the public. The Michigan legislature has the right to make this decision, rightly or wrongly. I'm not going to say whether it's a good idea, a bad idea. I'm just, whether you agree with them or you don't, listen, if you don't agree with them, uh, vote the bums out, right, and, and vote somebody into office that will, that will change the law. But as it stands under this particular case, the Michigan legislature has the right to make this decision and put it into law. 
So if the Michigan legislature wants to quote unquote weed out young people from the benefits of Haida because the legislature believes that they're more likely to reoffend because of the criminal acts in which they're engaging, well then that's absolutely within the right of the legislature to make those decisions, said our Court of Appeals. For all those reasons above, the Michigan Court of Appeals overturned the lower court's ruling, thus requiring Mr. Temelkowski to continue registering with the sex offender registry list. Before I go, I feel I should share with you what the Michigan Supreme Court did in this case when Mr. Temelkowski appealed to them. Remember, the Michigan Supreme Court only takes a very, very small percentage of cases in a year, so the fact that they took this case shouldn't be glossed over. On January 24th, 2018, the Michigan Supreme Court overruled the Michigan Court of Appeals. In their one-paragraph reasoning, they stated Mr. Temelkowski pled guilty in 1994 based upon the promise and benefits afforded for Haida status. They further noted he successfully completed all requirements of probation. Therefore, the Michigan Supremes held to retroactively apply the new sex offender registry punishment against him was to deprive him the benefits to which he was entitled. For that reason, it was a violation of his constitutional right to due process and the Supremes reinstated the trial judge's order that Mr. Temelkowski be removed from the sex offender registry. Okay, that's going to do it for episode number 25 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. You can find me at my website, TonySnyder.com, or Twitter, I'm at Tony Snyder. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.